The Movie Mork Podcast is supported by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you'd like to learn more about how to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash quasinim. And now for this week's episode. Just wash it all, wash it all away, it won't you. Ladies and gentlemen, grease and scrawls, welcome to the Movie Mork, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Jess Whitmore. And I'm your co-host, Annie Neller. And today we're going to be covering the 2019 uh, Marvel movie, Captain Marvel. That's not confusing at all. No, sir. Not <laughs> at all. It's Directed Mar-Vell. by Anna Bo- Bowden and Ryan Fleck. So, um, here at the Movie Morgue, what we do is we kind of cut apart movies and see what makes them tick. A little bit of review, a little bit of critical analysis. So, let's get right into this one and talk about the context because art doesn't exist in the vacuum, guys. So, Annie, you want to start us off with this one? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it depends on what we want for context, like what we were expecting for this one, or... Um, well, t- tell you what. Uh, for... Why don't you talk... Because you seem to have a bit more connection with the comics, Carol Danvers, and mm-hmm. the character. So tell me a little bit more about this character, because I, I'm a little bit familiar with Marvel comics, but mostly I'm just like, Civil War's dumb, Joe Quesada's an idiot. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um... But let's talk about Carol Danvers, because this movie and the character of Carol Danvers have a fascinating history behind them, one which I would argue is kind of um, representative of the ways that Marvel has changed its representation of women superheroes over time. So Carol Danvers gets introduced in 1968 in Marvel Superheroes 13, and initially she's really kind of uh, sort of a side character in some ways. Um, she is the colleague of this uh, Cree superhero whose name is Marvell, and unlike in the movie, in this version of the story, Marvell is a man. So it's kind of that boss secretary or um, you know, like boss junior colleague relationship that they have initially. Marvell is caught in an explosion, and his entity fuses with Carol Danvers, and that's how we get Miss Marvel. And so throughout the later 1960s and the early 1970s, she has, you know, she gets involved in some of these other storylines, again, kind of as a side character um, in uh, The Avengers. It's when we get to the 1980s, though, that things get really hanky, because Carol Danvers is featured in a storyline in which she is kidnapped, taken to another dimension, brainwashed, raped, and impregnated. And the Avengers do nothing about this. They assume that she is in love with this guy who has kidnapped her and who's done all these horrible things to her. This um, <laughs> this storyline romanticizes rape in a way that is just gag-worthy. And people picked up on this. There was a comics historian named Carol Strickland who wrote this essay that was truly a dressing down of Marvel for having done this. Um called The Rape of Miss Marvel, which you can find online. And um, essentially, her argument worked. Marvel changed its representation of Miss Marvel the year after and created a new storyline for her uh, where she was in um, an X-Men story instead. So there's been some shifts over time, but her early storylines were very distinctly rooted in sort of like 
misogynistic tropes and, you know, mired in these kind of um, distinctly anti-feminist politics of the 60s and 70s at Marvel. Uh, So there's really kind of a push and pull going on there to get her established as a character. The version that the movie is pulling on most heavily is Kelly Sue DeConnick's version from 2012, which really has brought a lot of complexity and nuance to the character of Miss Marvel. Um, Carol Danvers is presented as this kind of like cocky pilot who's a little bit more butch, um, who has some really close friends. She's given a lot more dimension in the storyline, which is something that I really deeply appreciate about this um, movie and about that comic in particular. And it's also really kind of a story about how women in the military make spaces for themselves and make community, uh, like find community with each other and stuff. So it's really kind of a cool storyline. And it's definitely one that we see reflected in the movie. There's been a lot of road bumps in the production for Miss Marvel. Um, Disney and Marvel have been trying to figure out how they can market a movie with a woman in the lead for a while. I don't know why there's been such resistance to this. A lot of studio bosses thought it couldn't sell. Um, That is obviously not the case right now. Um, If anyone's tracking the numbers on what the sales are looking like for this movie, it's doing very, very well. The other issue was the casting. Um, Initially, people didn't really know who to cast for it in the studios. I know a lot of fans, myself included, were very interested in seeing somebody who um, had a little bit more of that butchness to her, who brought a little bit more of that cocky vibe that uh, Carol Danvers had. Katie Sackhoff was one of the main choices for her role as Starbuck. Um... And I believe Michelle Rodriguez got mentioned as well. I would have really liked to see either of them in this role, um, but Brie Larson was cast instead. So there's kind of a lot of different politics being negotiated through this film. There's a lot going on here. It's important for people to know that up front. So that's my context. (laughs) Um, With the comics, with all the politics going into this movie... But Jess, how about you? Because I know you haven't read the comics. So what was your context? Uh, well, based on the trailers, one thing is I've actually been a little bit apprehensive about the Captain Marvel movie for a little bit for a couple of reasons. Um, I am still like I think the Marvel Cinematic Universe is kind of at a crux point where they kind of have to decide if they want to keep making good movies or if they want to just fall completely up their own ass. And the jury is still out on whether Infinity War is the former or the latter. Yeah. And Endgame is going to inform a lot of that. And one of the things that kind of concerned me was, like, the disc... Oh, there was a lot of discourse in, like, this kind of, like, very, like, simulationist, like, nerd, um, like, bullshitting. Like, oh, you know, if Captain Marvel is coming, Thanos is fucked. Like, this comparison of, like, power levels and stuff. Uh, which I think is completely the wrong emphasis for this film. But <laughs> yeah. So that that was a concern. But um a big thing is I I, I was actually I, I think the big thing that upset me um go before going into this was the post credit scene in uh in Infinity War. 
because it was just like, oh, here's the logo for the next movie. It really made it feel like such a commercial product in my mind that it really hurt, I think, my ability to be excited for it as an independent entity. Okay. Yeah, no, that's all totally legit. <laughs> um, that being said, um, as more stuff came out, I've actually been quite excited for this, particularly um, with Brie Larson's kind of comments on the docket and... You know, there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's become this kind of cultural battleground. Um, there's a lot of reactionary review bombing and stuff going on, and what it comes down to is, it 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 kind of puts me in a unenviable si- situation because I want it to be good for reasons that are beyond just I want there to be a good movie. I want there to be a good you know female-led Marvel movie. I want you know. I, I, I'm biased, I think is what I'm saying here. And when you're pre-biased against something like for something like that, it it puts this expectation on it. And it does, I think, at sometimes I, I think that expectation can ruin a film. It can ruin a piece of art. And like because the worst thing you can be in that situation is mediocre. And uh, we didn't get we didn't true. get that, so I'm so happy. No, but I was not. a little apprehensive yeah. because the reviews were saying it was mediocre. But we we'll get to the reviews and the kind of the critical discourse around this later. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, let's get to reviews. Let's actually talk because I really like this. I'm actually going to go ahead and give this one a solid A. Um, high A actually, not quite an A plus, um, but definitely a high A which I think is better than I give most Marvel films. Um, there's um, there's a sense of... I, I think what really sets this apart from other Marvel movies for me, because I do think this actually is a special case, is that it has a cohesive kind of thesis, and it has a message that actually says something beyond neoliberalism is good. And that's very good. So, um, what about you, Annie? How are you rating this one? Um, you know, I have very complicated feelings about this movie coming out of it. Um, on the one hand, I really, really enjoy the storyline. I think the writing for this film and the dialogue is conspicuously good. Um, more so than a lot of the previous setups to other Marvel films like, say, Captain America, Iron Man, some of the stuff that we've looked at. Uh, Brie Larson, I'm still not entirely sold on. And for that reason, I'm giving this movie an A-. Um, I think there are moments where her performance is very nuanced, but there are other ones where I'm just kind of like, eh, this feels a little bit low energy to me. And I guess we'll see where this goes in the future. Um, but overall, I really do like this movie. I think exactly the things that you've said as well there is a definite effort to push past some of the earlier neoliberal and then in iron man neocon arguments um they seem to be breaking new ground here that's right the movie work where we reduce every movie to fucking politics well because representation is politics so but yeah i'm curious to see where this goes yeah um, but, uh, so one, one thing I want to say is I'm actually going to push back a little bit on the kind of low energy vibe 
because I think it works for this film. And uh, specifically, Carol Danvers, at least in this incarnation, and maybe this goes against the spirit of the original comics, and I don't give a shit. Um, but she, wh- one of the things that really works for this film is there is a sense of enjoyment and happiness that kind of permeates it to a degree. And so, like, having a character that isn't always super intense, a character who, like, our, our mainline protagonist, who is allowed to just kind of sit and relax and to just, like, let, kind of go with the flow, I think, I mean, it's, it's a little zen, and I kind of dig. I feel like it works for this film, and it works for this character. But that's just me. I- yeah, and I can also see why they would have done it. Like, this is one of the first major films to have a woman showrunner, right? So, like, <clears throat> there is a lot of weight to this moment. There's a lot of responsibility that I could see the screenwriters and the directors feeling about how we write this character, how we bring this character to life, especially given where we are right now, where we're seeing this kind of um, deep entrenchment of the rhetoric that women are too emotional. So I understand why it's happening. And I, I do think that it there are parts of the story where it works very well. It's Again, a very subjective thing, as you pointed to before. I, to be honest, I was a little, um, I was a little disappointed that Katie Sackoff didn't get cast in this role. Um, okay, listeners, I think I've solved the mystery. I think Ernie <laughs> has a crush on Katie Sackoff. <laughs> I mean, maybe a tiny bit, but like, she just brings a different energy to the roles that she plays. I could also have seen Michelle Rodriguez in this role. I just okay, think... Michelle Rodriguez would have been good. I'll give you that one. Yeah, I'm not familiar with I Katie Sackoff. There's. There's a different vibe that they would have brought to this role in terms of their presentation of, you know, like who they are as women. And yeah, so we'll see where this goes. This is not like entirely discounting Brie Larson. I think actually some of the stuff that she's done in terms of the marketing of this movie has made me really happy. Um, I'm just not fully sold on her yet. And we'll see. We'll see. Maybe in the future I'll be more sold on it yeah yeah that's fine yeah and okay so i'm gonna say one thing though is uh there's an obvious textual reason why i think this kind of muted emotional palette kind of works for her but there's also a more metatextual read that i think kind of matters but we're gonna come back to that in some deeper cuts because i want to i want to kind of get into what we liked about this Um, yeah but yeah, yeah. No, I don't all, want people to think that I didn't like it because I actually really did. Yeah, no. Um. So, ba 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 ba. Sam Jackson's great. <laughs> He's amazing in this. And one thing that I'm really impressed with is the de aging felt very seamless to me. It felt really natural, and it wasn't disruptive like it wasn't something that um interrupted my belief in the storyline like it has been in previous marvel movies so i get the feeling that we've made a significant jump in terms of de-aging technology between now and say um you know ant-man yeah definitely 
Um, but one thing that I think is really lovely is I like this insight into Nick Fury because he's having fun. And I feel like this is a really fun role for Sam Jackson. Yeah. And I, I, I think, first of all, he, he's been Nick Fury for, you know, 10 years and they, they did the whole ultimate licensing deal for his likeness, uh, way before that. But, um, what he does in a lot of Avengers movies is he scowls and speaks dire portents. Avengers, I'm here to, you know, I, I can't, I can't do a Sam Jackson voice. I'm not even going to try, but like, it's this very serious, very grim. like, you know, here's the stuff that's happening. Here's what's going on. And we're just gonna, you know. Like here's here's the apocalypse. Like that's that's what Sam Jackson does in these movies, and so to like to kind of dick around to go on goofy car chases to hang out with Coulson, like that's lovely, like positively lovely. And I don't want to say he's not having fun in the other Avengers movies because I feel like like we have context to say that it's something he's passionate about and something he enjoys. It just it feels like this was a fun performance to do. Yeah, and I think it also fits well with the um, character of Nick Fury that the MCU is kind of built both in the movies themselves and also in um, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because that sort of playful aspect of Nick Fury comes up quite a bit in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So this felt very true to form. It felt very seamless. And um, I just, I love the story with him and Goose. I think that's oh, that like was my lovely. favorite thing of all time. <laughs> Goose was just a treasure. Actually, apparently, I read that uh, they looked at the original script and said we need a hundred, we need two hundred percent more cat. <laughs> I mean, I guess they know their target audience, which is basically me. Yeah. So why not? <laughs> um. Anyways, let's talk about Ben Mendelsohn a little bit. Because he kind of stole a lot of scenes. Yeah, he did. And I, 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 I think, like, I think one of my favorite beats was him just drinking, I think it was a milkshake. The soda thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's just such a great moment. Um, because, like, one of the things this game, play, this game, this movie plays with is this kind of sense of paranoia of, it's like this it follows level of, oh, are you a thing? Are you a thing? Um, you know, it's it's the thing, <laughs> literally. Like you know, in nineteen eighty eight, uh, John Carpenter's the thing is you have to test and you have to determine who's really a person, and so they just go through that procedure with the guy outside, and they turn around. And it's like, oh no, he's he's inside. He's being there without pretense. It's great, but like, I don't know, Annie. Do you have any thoughts? Oh yeah, he's fantastic in this. I mean, he's very funny. I don't think audiences are going to be familiar with him not playing a bad guy because that's kind of who he's played in a lot of mainstream films for the past few years. Um, so that was a good casting choice. But on top of that, you know, he brings so much nuance and complexity to this character, partly because he has such a good sense of timing. He's very emotionally grounded in the scenes. And he just, he gives the actors around him so much to work with. He has this uncanny ability to kind of read a room and figure out how to disrupt the energy in it. And uh, that works really well for a movie like this. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I had a thought in my brain. I had a thought in my brain. Okay, so actually I'm kind of curious because, Annie, you seem to know a little bit more about this kind of aspect, but what's kind of going on with his vocal performance? It's very odd. And I like it. I just, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. 
Um, what do you mean his vocal performance? Like, the the kind of vocal affectation. He talks weird. Um, like he has a slight lisp and a very thick Aussie accent. <laughs> that is his natural speaking voice. Okay, I, 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 I haven't seen him in that much stuff. I didn't think that was his, I just, I, I didn't expect oh, yeah. that sound to come out of him. No, and I actually, when we talk about deeper cuts, um, one thing I'll bring up is why it's important that he has a very thick Aussie accent in a movie that is distinctly about refugees. So we can talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, right, that is his real Right, place. the island. Uh, yep. subject. Yep. And then, I guess, like, just scrolling through the cast, I feel like, okay, no, no we, we got to talk about Monica Rambeau. We gotta talk about Akira Akbar, but sorry, the the way they list the credits is very odd because you've got all these fucking Cree I don't give two shits about, except maybe Korath. You know, Jimon Honsu is great. Yeah, and like Lee Pace is great, but Ronan doesn't matter in this movie, so I really don't Lee care. Lee Pace is fine in this, but he doesn't have anything to do, and also Ronan doesn't have his typical like face markings i'm not really sure why they chose not to do that in this one it, that could be me being really petty and weird but i was kind of like this is something that was really a distinguishing feature for him in guardians so why did I you not think bring that there's back? a reason they're doing that and i think the kind of narrative I'm beat that they're going is. is first of all they're we're doing this kind of like imperialist neoliberal empire in the Cree. And we're presenting them as the good guys for the first half of the movie. Sure, um, yeah. So, and I actually don't like that they're doing this because I think it kind of feeds into this narrative that we're sh- that we're showing uh, that we're showing uh, Ronan here as being a more just and less corrupt figure, and thus that the Kree Empire is less outlandishly evil to begin with, when it's clear that they have these imperialistic fuckwit tendencies and so it's it's kind of sterilizing their image and it's kind of selling because like when you look at ronan and the death stone or whatever the fuck it's called the life stone i I don't remember the souls no no it's not this i don't fucking it's one of the stones the rock (laughs) the pretty rock that shiny thing um is that he's kind of got this aesthetic this narrative aesthetic of corruption like when you look at the face markings, it's it's not just like paint; it's like ooze. It's like it's coming out of him. It's like it's you know rivuleting down his face. So I think showing this kind of sterile younger Ronan is kind of making this narrative of sure he's doing some bad things here, but like oh he's just like you know government making hard decisions he's just like he didn't know and now then later on he's just straight up evil whereas you know i i, I think it's sterilizing this idea of you know there being this delineation between doing bad things and doing bad things while being a bad person that's interesting because i kind of like both the times that ronan appears in this movie i really did get fanatical um creeper vibes from him so yeah, I don't know. There there might I think there is a tiny bit of trickery 
going on in the storyline in terms of how it sets up the Cree Empire initially, because essentially the storyline has to move the audience towards the are we the baddies thing, yeah. right? Well, here's so. the thing regarding Ronan and this kind of creeper vibe that he has, because one of the things, and I think this is an interesting coding, um, because first of all, like, the outfit um, is, I think, very much against kind of our standardized Western, you know, um, ideals of masculinity and beauty, like the 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 fucking head skirt. Mm, it looks like a crusader's uniform to me, and I think that most Euro American audiences who have seen this will already have seen a lot of movies about things like the Knights Templar. They're familiar with this kind of uniform, and it's drawing on the image of the Crusader Knight as fanatical for very particular reasons. Um. But um, if I if I can finish the thought real fast, okay, um, is like w- one of the things is it looks. I I want to contrast um, this appearance with his Guardians of the Galaxy appearance because he seems much less comfortable in the costume. Like it doesn't seem to fit as well, and his face is much more visible. And I'm I have to say it. There's a little bit of a Blue Man Group vibe going on, and I love it. <laughs> So, so like his eye, because you don't have that darkness around his eyes, they feel much larger and much more visible, and so he looks more nervous and more vulnerable, and it, it just feels much less imposing in general. But when you compare these two appearances, in Guardians of the Galaxy, he is corrupted, he is passionate, he is you know furious, and it seems that there is an aesthetic of a loss of control. And so his evil is not just, you know, the general course of his actions that he's hurting people and he's a genocidal fuckwit. It's that he's doing that while being, you know, ruled by his emotions and being corrupted and being influenced by outside forces. Okay. Um, so it's not being masterful, whereas this is more restrained, it's more afraid, and it's more, rash- quote-unquote, rational and acceptable. I think is this is a character who is making mistakes, who is doing bad things, but it's someone who you'd kind of let off with a scrap slap on the wrist at a war tribunal, you know, mm. whereas, uh, <laughs> look, we, we've okay. got issues with the kind of like military judicial, but like, <laughs> this is the kind of guy that would weasel his way out of things. And later Ronan is the kind of guy you'd be like, Oh, this guy's really easy to paint as the bad guy. We're going to fucking <laughs> okay. crucify him. All right, I can. Is see is that, that kind of communication? It's, it's a weird point I'm yeah. trying to make, and I'm doing it on the fly, but I do feel like there. No, are, I can see that more. Yeah, there there are these kind of very subtle like costuming decisions they're making with him, and also with kind of his role in the story. Is he show he he because he's very powerful behind the scenes when he's like a hologram. Is like, where are the things? Take the thing. Go get the thing. Do not he, like he's the emperor in that situation. But when he shows up, he's like, fire the missiles. Oh, that's that's not working. Uh, fall back. You know? is he's, he's not the natural force of charisma that he is in the later ones. Sure. So I guess we did have a lot more to say about Lee Pace. But, like, honestly, <laughs> like, outside, outside of the context of the greater Marvel Universe, like, I still kind of stand by the fact that I don't give a shit about him in this movie. 
Yeah. Like, I it's mean, interesting in contrast to Guardians of the Galaxy, but it, I don't think it's... It, like, if that movie didn't exist, if this was the only Marvel movie I've ever seen, I wouldn't give a shit about him. Yeah, like, I don't really understand why he's here in this movie, apart from being a, a plot force. I mean, I maybe they'll make another one? I have no idea. I really don't. Um, I think some other people that we could talk about here... First of all, I mean... Annette Benning is apparently back, which is great. I haven't seen Annette Benning in anything in years. <clears throat> so it was really nice to see her as uh, Wendy Lawson slash Marvel slash Supreme Intelligence. Um, that's uh, quite the triple casting there for her. She was good. It was kind of a secondary role, but she did a good job. She was and... good. I will say, though... Like, particularly with the supreme uh, intelligence version of her, yeah. um, with the makeup and costuming choices, it was really weird because, like, it's Abuela. It's it's Hillary Clinton, <laughs> who is both the villain and the and the mentor hero, and it's, it's fucking weird. Yeah. And I considering, mean... like, the whole narrative is kind of turning away from unjust war, that's, that's weird. This is... I don't I don't know if I see it as being all that weird considering some of the things that we know about, you know, people like Hillary Clinton and there's quite a few different political figures who have very distinctive um militaristic vibe to them. So I could kind of see that, I guess. Um I think it's fair to put that in there. Uh, the other person who I really liked in this movie, who I've never seen in anything before, was Lashana Lynch as Maria Rambo. Um, and her uh, daughter, Monica Rambo, is played by Akira Akbar, who is just so cute. Absolutely adorable. And also yeah. Azari Akbar, twins. Oh, wait, no, 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 sorry. Not that bad. Brain fart, brain fart. Oh, but her, <laughs> her sister plays her younger version of herself. That's awesome. Yeah. Sorry, no, I did have a specific note because I, I, I want to go back to this before I forget because I was watching the credits because, you know, they make uh-huh. you do it now. Um, yeah. But um, Solar, sorry, blah, 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 blah. Talos's, um, Talos's uh, daughter was played mm-hmm. by twins. And I just had this lovely thought. It's like, that's got to be, that's like, cool. so cool because, not like, not only are you, you know, like, tw- like, you know, twins and child actors. That's a thing that goes on. But to, like, to do, like, the makeup and the prosthetics like that, like, that's got to be a really cool thing to share. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun, I think. And, like, I'm never going to remember that again. But, like, I just, I wanted to share that thought because I had it and it just made me smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that would be a lot of fun to share. It's kind of a cute thing. No, Maria um, Rambeau was a fantastic character, though. I really enjoyed her perform. I really enjoyed her in this movie, and Lashana Lynch did a great job. Her um, performance is good. Her line readings are very good, and there's a definite chemistry between her and Brie Larson that I think works very well to bring out this idea of a very deeply rooted friendship in the movie. So I just really appreciated that. Sorry, I chose the wrong moment to take a swig. Um, (laughs) I really liked her speech about what is hard. Um, There was some really powerful emotion in that. Because, and it's resonant with me for a couple of reasons. Like, I've 
I'm transitioning. I'm coming out to people constantly. I'm having a lot of very difficult conversations. And I really relate to that performance where it's about like, this is what's going on. This, These are my struggles. This is what's going on. These are my frustrations with the world and the system. And like at the core of it, there's this, you know, humanity and this connection and there's this hurt. And so like a fucking plus performance there. Yeah, I kind of had a, a similar feeling about it. Like I definitely related very much to that speech, particularly some of my friends are away right now. I'm in this interesting phase in grad school where uh, people move away, they get jobs, or they're out doing, you know, field work, and they're far away from you. And so I have these really, you know, like a lot of my, my best friends are, are not near. And that feeling that she talked about was something that I could deeply relate to. There's a kind of a sense of loss to that. And I just really appreciated that moment. let's let's talk about the 90s for a moment um because i i'm i'm it's it's actually kind of funny when you think about it because one thing is like yeah it's the 90s it's great but it's 2019 we're coming out of the 2010s now so when you look at her showing up in the post-credit sequence it's like okay um it's been 30 fucking years um okay yeah and like it, it's, a, it's a little odd, but I think they captured it fairly well um, beyond just being a cheap gag of like, oh, you're landing in a blockbuster. Hey, there's a Radio Shack. Um, and I don't know what this is. And I think this is me absorbing kind of the zeitgeist through film and culture. But like the road trips and like the kind of dry desert driving felt very 90s to me. Oh, yeah. Very 90s. Um, and particularly also some of the camera work felt very like late 80s early 90s to me with some of those um pull zooms that were also tracking um carol's movement that's very 90s hallmark so even the camera work is kind of dialed into that period stylization can i just say how much i love the car chase just seeing all those boxy cars and no fucking honda civics right (laughs) (laughs) it's just like because like oh like that was weird. I was like, my childhood is coming back to hit me in the face. I don't know what to do. And it's it was like, really strange. I'm not much of a car girl, but like, even I get suckered into that kind of like boomer wistful nostalgia of like, oh man, cars ain't made them the same since like 59, right? you know? But, but like, you know, everything went like, you know, smooth curves and then they went to like this like really fun, like boxy place and like the, like, late 70s through like the early 90s and then like nowadays everything is like this kind of like weird curve with a bump and so like i feel like car design has become so much more homogenous and just to see like these boxy cars just swerving driving around it it takes me back to a lot of i guess more filmic memories than actual memory but like i love it oh yeah no this this gave me um a lot of like lethal weapon memories a lot of other things coming from like the late 80s and early 90s as well. It was just an interesting moment. I do feel though that it actually is a little incongruent with some of the other stuff in the film though, particularly when they go to space. When they go to space, it feels super modern. So like, I think 
as yeah. much of the as they've done a couple of camera tricks and they've been careful and they've really well constructed this kind of facade of the zeitgeist of the 90s um the, without like anchor points to tie them down to it it kind of falls out the window oh yeah definitely i don't know that i necessarily see the 90s feel carried out entirely in the costuming as well like rambo definitely wears a jumpsuit that looks 90s to me but as for the other characters i'm not so sure that i see that so on top of the space thing oh but she's got a nine inch nails (laughs) t-shirt that was a good one but yeah that was about it (laughs) yeah but um no, it, it, it's... But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with a little bit of incongruity in a movie that is this good. Yeah. The other thing I think that they did quite well, I think, is... And I think this sells the illusion of the 90s, because it's not just the 90s. It's also the remains and the detritus from the late 80s. Yep. <laughs> um, so, in particular, I think Fury's Office... Feels pretty oh, good yeah. in that regard. No, that was dead on. Yeah. Um, but also the archive in the airbase. Like that felt like a scene out of like Mindhunter or something. Like it's got that kind of dry, airy, like old library. And like again, this is something I'm mostly pulling from I mean, I did have a little bit of experience with like universities and so on, but not much when I was younger. <laughs> Not um, much has changed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But at least, like, they've updated the lights. Uh Oh, yeah, no, but the dream of the 90s is still alive and kicking in the archives. I will say that. There are certain oh, yeah. things that have changed, but that felt, <laughs> that archive scene, I was like, this feels like home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. The other thing, though, I want to say is just that scene was really fun. Because I really like the the set piece of the lights. The lights were a really clever set piece. It gave it this yeah. kind of tense, like, cat and mouse game feel to it, which I really liked. And it was also a good sound effect, just that kind of chunk, chunk, chunk. Yeah, that was definitely giving me some, like, war games vibes, which I really, really dug. So, yeah. So I think it's time for some deep cuts. I, I think we've been holding back. <laughs> and I've wanted to talk about a Tiny few bit. for a while. So, real fast, um, time to trans-allegory. Probably about an hour for this one, actually. <laughs> um, That's impressive. Because here's the thing, like, as a trans woman, I can obviously force a trans reading. I think that's fair to say, is I could be like, yeah, no, that's trans. That's trans. That's trans. But... Um, what really sold me on this and what kind of made it powerful for me, um, was the sequence where she breaks free and she becomes powerful. You know, she removes the inhibitor and she like fully accepts herself as Carol Danvers because there's a couple of like kind of narrative conceits that kind of play together to create this like resonant whole for me in particular is um she is claiming her own name and refusing an assigned name um she is accepting this identity that was denied to her you know she was assigned Cree. she's literally infused with it um 
but also, uh, I think what really, and like, this movie didn't make me cry, but I did choke up and get misty a lot. And I think it was that speech about being just human and having had an arm behind her back her entire life. Um, because it's this weirdly condensed metaphor where it's not her whole life where she's been, you know, quote unquote, in the closet, but it's her entire living memory. Mm, and so yeah. when she says, I, I, I've had my arm behind my back, I haven't been myself, like, I haven't been, and like, metaphorically, you know, powerful, radiant, beautiful, empowered, like, all those things she's and there's also this kind of like metaphorical you know restraint of emotions and cold rationality and sociopathy as social virtues yeah so <clears throat> like you can kind of scan that as like a metaphor for toxic masculinity if you want to and actually there that's i think that's a very valid read so when she's saying i'm letting these things go i am being myself and myself is powerful and beautiful and freeing that speaks to me on a very personal level. That and they basically try to conversion therapy her. Yeah. And yeah, I do I want... And, and, and that's another reason I think that the muted performance really works for her. Um, Because, like, she is kind of in a fugue a little bit. Like and and this is my reading and I'll accept that I have biases and preconceptions, but for me that absolutely works because she's like very mute and so on. And one of the things that was such a powerful scene for me was when she's fighting the fighter jets in uh the the Kree Empire sends and she's dashing around, she's curving, and she's finding this euphoria in her power that she's never been able to indulge in. But there's this one shot where she sweeps and curves towards the screen and goes up. And you can see her face for, like, maybe five frames. And she's smiling. And you hear this little laugh, this exuberance and joy that's just expressed. Is this, I am myself, this makes me happy, and I have never had this. It's such a small shot, but to me, that speaks to kind of my experience of coming to terms with myself and coming out and expressing, you know, my authentic self where I didn't get to do that for 27 years for my entire life. And, you know, I feel like she has that experience and I feel that's expressing that. It chokes me up. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So, yeah, there's there's my trans allegory. There, there's your trans reading for the day. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. It's also something that's really, really needed in film criticism right now. So keep doing it. One of the things that I wanted to bring up again, since I already mentioned it before, is the significance of Ben Mendelsohn's accent. I'm going to argue that it he's doing something really important here as an Australian actor, portraying a refugee at a time when... Um, Refugees and undocumented people in Australia are being sent to islands. Um, so they are effectively being sent to camps that are on islands separate from the continent itself. So we're living in this really kind of interesting political moment in which countries around the world are talking about 
uh, migration and immigration and citizenship and what those things mean. And there are very particular ideological positions about this. On the one hand, you have this idea that immigrants are dangerous. They are a threat coming from the outside that will then pose a threat on the inside of the country, the idea that they cannot assimilate, um, all of which is embodied in the first half of the movie in the way the scrolls are characterized, right? Their um, ability to shapeshift is presented as camouflage. It's presented as a tactic of warfare. They are the threat from within. And then you have this other position that kind of suggests that, you know, the people who are going to these different countries who are trying to escape is really what they're doing. They're trying to survive. Um, and that they are also people, that they're beings, that we need to return some sense of humanity to this debate about what to do with people. Um, which I think is fairly represented in the second half of the film in the way that the portrayal of the scrolls shifts away from this presentation of them as um, threats or as military officers toward them as family members, as people who laugh, as people who are upset by suffering, as people who have had to be away from their family members for a long time to keep them alive. And, you know, so this movie is very distinctly telling a story about immigration and about these ideas that are currently out there in the geopolitical landscape. And, you know, I think as much as a lot of our debates here in the U.S. and Canada center around the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, there are other places that are tackling these issues and doing some things that are not particularly great. Um, in Australia, kind of similar to the situation with the placement of undocumented people in camps that was happening here in the U.S. and continues to happen here in the U.S. In Australia, um, people are being shipped to islands by the government and they're being placed in detention camps there. And the conditions under which people are living are not good. There are a lot of people getting sick and dying. Um, there are things happening to children that should happen to no child ever. And it's not a good situation. So to have an Australian actor um, with this really, like, strong accent, <laughs> an accent that cannot be mistaken for something else, um, portraying a character in this nuanced and complicated and very empathetic way is, I think, very important in the current political moment. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is the storyline that this movie explores with regards to men mentors and women mentees. Uh, that was very, very real to me. And particularly, I think it's a very specific form of toxic mentorship that this movie explores. It's this form of mentorship where... Um, the mentor always knows more than the mentee where they cannot relinquish control over them, um, oftentimes where they're looking down at them constantly and critiquing them. And as a result, you know, like the mentee is not able to find their confidence, is not able to take ownership of who they are um, until they break free of that person. And um, 
that was just super, super real to me. That was, yeah, (laughs) that was very familiar. And I'm not trying to say that all men mentors are bad. I'm not. Um, I've had some really wonderful ones in my life, particularly some college professors that I can think of. Um, But there is definitely a species of man mentor out there that is distinctly toxic um, that will always seek to occupy this position of quote-unquote rationality and objectivity and not allow somebody to come into their own. And I really like the moment where um, she refuses to fight him. Instead, she just blasts him with her powers. It's such a great moment. She won't go fisticuffs. I fucking love that. I fucking love that because what one of the things is there's a lot of ways that you can kind of cross wires and look at this as being related to the current sociopolitical landscape. Yeah, and I, I think that scene is going to speak to a lot of women, like not just to women like me who are in academia and who see this, but really to a lot of different women who've experienced that firsthand because there are a lot of um, advisor relationships that are like that and it's deeply toxic. I love Yon Rog, and I I will say this. Um, it took me a minute or two to confirm in my brain it was Jude Law just because of the contact lenses. Like it it, it just threw me off just enough. Okay. Um, but I actually I really like the moment where she just blasts him. Um, because I there are a lot of ways I think to kind of map things that are happening in this to you know our current social political landscape. You know, refugee crisis. Uh, you know. Alt-right All the stuff that's come out There's... about women in the military, particularly recently, Martha McSally's um, mentioning that she was raped by her commanding officer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's just so many situations that this story can kind of speak to in certain ways. And I don't even know that they intended it to be that way. Yeah. That being said, though, there is a specific... Um, kind of, I guess, rhetorical metaphor, I could call it here, that I really like because what Jude Law's doing is basically like this martial metaphor for a false equivalency is it's the Ben Shapiro, debate me, debate yep. me, debate yep. me. And she does the correct response. She does, you know, dare I say the Ocasio-Cortez is saying like, oh, okay, you come to Congress, bitch. You know, is he saying like, okay, the I, since I am you know, on the losing end, I'm going to manipulate the situation and try to instill this um, paradigm and to insist on this rule, these rules of engagement that favor me. And because I'm relying on your good nature and your presumption of good faith when I have none to abuse that trust and that social contract. So when he's saying... Oh, you know, let's just have a good old duel of fisticuffs. It's because he knows he has no chance in a straight fight. And honestly, he's probably planning something sneaky. So when she just fucking blasts him, and not only does she just blast him, but she doesn't even bother to kill him. She sends him home with a message. Like, that is... She sends him home with a message that's going to embarrass him and erode his status as an authority figure. And I really, really liked that, too. Like, that got me. Yeah, no, like I said, it, it's it's really fun because it is a martial metaphor for, like, a really deft kind of 
rhetorical, debatey, you know, discourse move. Because that is where, like, you know, a lot of, like, you know, especially centrist Democrats just kind of fall apart is the presumption of good faith and everything is about decorum. When, you know, people, these people have demonstrated repeatedly that they are bad faith actors and that we can't take them at their word or engage with them on their terms, but they keep fucking falling for it. What I'm saying is, um, Carol Danvers 2020? <laughs> sure. Um, one other thing that I did want to bring up, though, too, is that something that I'm noticing a lot in the reviews, which is bugging me a tiny bit, is the description of this film as the female experience. <laughs> uh... Yeah, I. Mm, that is not what this movie is doing. Can- Carol Danvers is not a stand in for all women. This is not a universal story. I think it is speaking to some larger themes that we've seen, you know play out, shall we say, in the history of the past three to five years. Um, So it's definitely speaking to current events, but it's also coming from somebody of very particular positionality. So let's not put the uh, term V and also female. (laughs) Let's not. Yeah. I mean, that that is part of the thing is like, There are limits to this metaphor. Yeah, there are limits, but also I think it kind of speaks a little bit to this film's position as like this cultural battleground. You know, it's, oh, here's the SJWs versus the MAGA Chuds. It's like, you know, this this thing thing got fucking review bombed on Rotten Tomatoes before it was released. Like, they literally changed their policies over this film because, like, it was down to like 20... Yeah, we should explain to people what exactly it was that happened, like who it was doing it, because there may be some listeners who didn't know. By all means, and you would like to. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um. So basically, a whole bunch of people on Reddit and some other platforms decided that um this was as you described this sort of like SJW party in a movie. And they decided they were going to just kind of like review bomb um, Rotten Tomatoes. So in the week and a half before this movie actually premiered in theaters, they were just totally bombing the section that says want to see. And they were saying they didn't want to see it. Um, And for that reason, Rotten Tomatoes has now changed things around so that people cannot do that before a movie premieres. So... Yeah, and there was also some stuff going on at press conferences as well. People were getting mad at Brie Larson for saying that she wanted um, reviewers and film critics of color to be centered in the discourse about this film. Um, People were very mad about that. So there was a lot going on with this movie, and you're right to describe it as a battleground. Yeah, and it's... (laughs) It's 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 kind of funny to me, honestly, because like it's the same thing that happened with Star Wars is, you know, little white cuckball is like, oh, we're going to boycott this and we're going to show we're going to make Marvel acquiesce to us because we've made them lose money. And then you get to something like this. And it's just like, no, they they did the focus testing. They did the research. Your money isn't worth it anymore, buddy. It's like, okay, maybe. 
maybe you make them lose a million dollars out of like 300 million. It's like, yeah, the free market has spoken, bitch. <laughs> I think that's kind of all we have to say on this, really. Like, there's a lot going on and it ties into a lot of things. And I'm curious to see if the discourse kind of evolves any further. But this was really lovely. And it hit a few buttons for me. And I think it's an important film, and it's probably my favorite out of, you know, the last, the second half of the, it's my, I think it's my favorite movie in phase two, except maybe Ragnarok, but like, it yeah, stands alone. Yeah, I was going to say that. It stands yeah. alone in a way that the other ones really haven't. And that's, I think, really refreshing for the Marvel Universe, because it was getting to the point where it's like, you cannot watch these as like, there are no more entry points into the series. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, if that's the case, like, that's how something atrophies is you can't bring in new blood. Because it's like, hey, you want to go see the new Avengers? Oh, I haven't watched any of these Marvel movies. Uh, Where do I start? Okay, you got to start with, um. okay, actually, go go watch Iron Man 2, but not Iron Man, watch, no, watch Iron Man 3, but not Iron Man 2, but do watch Iron Man 1 after, so you get the context. It's just like, you, you got to watch, like, at least 10 movies to get to Avengers, you know? And even that's with a lot of skipping. So, like, to have something that you can just jump in and do, like, this is also an important movie for their kind of, like, marketing strategy. And it's great. And in terms of representation and, you know, it's still a piece of, you know, the bourgeois capitalist machine, but it's led by women, it's starring women, it's being, it's made, I think, largely for women. And so, like, it's an important thing. And that's been a lot of the kind of critical, like, the the elected, the ascended critical discourse is like, yeah, you know, a lot of C pluses and Bs, a lot of, like, yeah, you can describe this as being your perfectly mediocre, formulaic Marvel movie, but that betrays a, like, fundamental disregard for the things that are unique about this film and that are absolutely intrinsic and integral to the DNA of what this film is trying to achieve. Yeah, this is a very significant moment in comics history. I mean, this is a character who went from being somebody's woman colleague in the late 1960s to being one of the most powerful superheroes in the Marvel Universe and now is the main protagonist in a feature film. That's a big deal. And everybody that I've talked to about going to see this movie has really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, so many people have been telling me stories about what they like. Uh, a ton of people love the stuff between Goose and Nick Fury. Um, a lot of people liked the shake sipping thing and the scrolls. Um, for me... What I really like about this movie are the relationships between people and how the story makes those relationships present, whether that's um, Rambo's story about the difficulty of her friend being away for a really long time, or um, Nick Fury singing to Captain Marvel at the sink. Um, that stuff is just really lovely, and I like how genuine those moments feel. So for those of our listeners who haven't already seen it, we highly recommend that you go and see this one and see it on as big a screen as you can manage. 
Yeah, the effects are lovely. I'm actually like, that's like a little minor point for me is just like the kind of like fractal based wave and curve aesthetic to her powers is absolutely lovely. Uh, it's like a, it's like watching a solar flare. But also, going back to your point about friendships, I just really fast, I want to give a shout out to Clark Gregg because oh, Coulson yeah. is lovely in this. And yeah. I don't think we really had much to say about him except that he is lovely. And I do really love that moment of trust he has with Fury in the archive. Ugh, always. His friendship with Nick Fury is another one of my favorites, I think, in the MCU. So... Yeah, I, I, I also love I fucking love that um <laughs> the, the the gag about the eye is like is it true that you lost your eye because they burned it out because they tried to torture you and you wouldn't talk I will neither confirm nor deny <laughs> yep <laughs> it's very good it's very very oh, yeah. good uh and it's 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 principled and it's joyous in a way that a lot of Marvel films haven't been. Um, a lot of Marvel films are built on, you know, like great man theory and kind of Randy and Ubermensch, whereas this is much more connected and it has much more of a point. It's this whole idea of breaking away from unjust wars and learning to, you know, see the truth behind these kind of like assumed neutral politics that we have in this day and age it's you know getting woke to the iraq war it's getting it's it's very modern and so like yes you could describe this as the typical boring marvel movie if you ignore basically everything about it so no this is special this is great go see it like i i enjoyed the shit out of it and i'm gonna go see it again tomorrow yeah, I, I have to say, I probably will see this one a second time, and that's not something that I typically do, so... Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, this has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. Uh, I've been your host, Jess Whitmore. You guys can follow me on Twitter and twitch.tv, where I stream video games five days... Sorry, four days a week. I'm taking better care of myself now. At Quasinim. That's Q-U-A-S-I-N-Y-M. Uh, Annie, where can people find you in your work? People can find me on Instagram. I'm a little bit more active on my Instagram account right now. So you can find me at Lights and Music, where um, I just kind of post pictures of my daily life and the books I'm reading and my doggo. Oscar, the little fart factory. Yes, he is. <laughs> he terrorized our office just before we recorded. Oh, yeah, it was it was real bad. It was real bad. <laughs> Anyways, you guys can follow us on Twitter at MovieMorgCast, on Facebook at MovieMorgPodcast, and um, our intro music, as always, is Trouble by Ipso Factibus. Find a link to their EP in the show notes. And uh, first of all, thank you guys so much for listening. We appreciate and love each and every one of you. Um, but if you want to take that a step further and support us even more, um, feel free to like and share and retweet. Feel free to tweet at us at any of those addresses we talked about. Um, most of importantly, though, tell a friend. Just find a friend and say, like, hey, I know these two really big dorks who are really, like, dumb <laughs> and funny about movies. Talk to them. Um, and if you want to go even a step further, we do have a Patreon that helps us keep the server space running and all that. And that's at patreon.com slash quasinim, Q-U-A-S-I-N-Y-M. But regardless, this this, uh, support is never demanded and never expected. 
We love you guys, and we thank you so much. You guys are wonderful. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.